This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 17th of February 2024. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a look through the week's news and culture with Isabel Hilton, who's an international journalist and the founder of China Dialogue. And then we'll speak to the historian and author, Professor Susanna Liskin, who's the chair of the judges for the first Women's Prize for Non-Fiction. First, though, here's the news. Western leaders have criticised Russia over the death of Alexei Navalny, with US President Joe Biden blaming it on something Putin and his thugs did. Navalny, Russian President Vladimir Putin's most formidable domestic opponent, fell unconscious and died on Friday after a walk at the Arctic penal colony where he was serving a three-decade sentence. Ukrainian troops withdrew from the devastated eastern town of Avdivka, Ukraine's new army chief said in the early hours of this morning, paving the way for Russia's biggest advance since May 2023 when it captured the city of Bakhmut. The withdrawal, announced as Ukraine faces acute shortages of ammunition with US military aid delayed for months in Congress, aimed to save troops from being fully surrounded by Russian forces after months of fierce fighting. And Japan successfully launched its new H-3 flagship rocket today, putting its satellite programme back on track after multiple setbacks, including the failure of the rocket's inaugural flight last year. The launch also marks a second straight win for the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency after its moon lander achieved a pinpoint touchdown last month. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined now in the studio by Isabel Hilton, international journalist and founder of China Dialogue. Good morning to you, Isabel. Good morning, Georgina. What a pleasure to be here. Uh, now, we've been talking to each other for years. I mean, we I think have, I've, yes. I've been here for over a decade and so have you. <laughs> and so Don't I've, tell anyone. <laughs> I've never really actually looked into your background because we've never sat down and done a sort of in-depth interview. And I see now that you are hugely distinguished. I mean, I knew you were terribly clever, but... All of these books, what, eight non-fiction <laughs> books. Uh, you're an OBE. Uh, you're described as a trailblazing international journalist. But also you, you were the founder of China Dialogue. Yeah. Uh, tell us about China Dialogue. Well, China Dialogue in, in, in 2006, I, I have a background in, in Chinese. I learned Chinese. I went to university in China and the Cultural Revolution and so on. Uh, it was thought very eccentric at the time, by the way. Um, however, the world caught up. But in 2006, I um, noticed that if you went to conferences on China, Nobody mentioned climate change. And if you went to conferences on climate change, nobody mentioned China. And China was already the world's biggest emitter. So it seemed to me that you had two bodies of expertise that weren't talking to each other and needed to. So I set up the world's first bilingual Chinese-English website, which was publishing in both directions. So publishing out of China for people who didn't read or speak Chinese or know much about China. How Chinese policy was made. China was in the middle of a massive pollution crisis, which wasn't being reported. You know, why was China the world's biggest emitter? What were the prospects of China bringing its emissions down? And then into China, we would publish not 
instructions on China. What should China do? Because China would pay no attention. But lessons from elsewhere. How you know? How did London clean up the Thames, for example, or or the great smogs of London? We had we had air quality as bad as Beijing's back in the sixties. So you know, it was kind of partly so that Chinese policymakers could understand that you know that certain models of development produce certain results, and they didn't have to repeat all the mistakes. They could also learn some good things, and it it flourished. It, we went on. I went on to you know we ended up with four different websites on different aspects of China's um, impact on the world. So one in Latin America, one on the global ocean, one on the third pole, which is the Himalayan watershed, and publishing in eleven languages. And it became a sort of go-to place if you needed your primer on China and climate change, which increasingly the world did.、Mm, absolutely, and you became a very much a go-to environmental consultant, I suppose. <laughs> which brings us to what you've just been doing. Yes, I've just been in in Kiev. My actually my my first visit to Ukraine, and it was extraordinary. It was it was brief, but absolutely fascinating. And I was there with a delegation、uh, that has been looking at the environmental impacts of the war, and it's quite it's quite difficult when people are dying to talk about the environmental impacts and not sound frivolous. But if you think of the massive、uh, environmental crimes that China has committed, including blowing up the Kharkov Dam and flooding, you know. Huge, huge areas of Ukraine.、Um, they occupied the Chernobyl、uh, power station, which、uh, everyone will remember as the place which nearly, you know, ended the world.、Um, and and、uh, you know, they 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 were digging into this highly contaminated area, disturbing、uh, disturbing the the,、um, the the soil in the inclusion zone, sending radiation spikes upwards. But also, when they left, when they were driven out, they stole everything. So they stole all the computers. All the furniture, all the monitoring equipment, because there is a team at Chernobyl still, which is managing, still managing the decommissioning of the plants and managing, you know, monitoring、uh, con- contamination levels. They put a, 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 a what they call a sarcophagus over the the damaged plant, a massive steel structure. So that's to limit the amount of aerial radiation. But it's still a highly dangerous site. You know, you're not allowed to live there. You're not allowed to work there for very long. You know, we went into、um, Unit Four, which was the one that blew up. But you know, again, dressed in you know protective gear and not allowed to、mm. stay there very long. And before we went in, our guide said, "If you drop anything on the floor, don't pick it up." <laughs> so、wow. you know, you have to be. Really aware that this is still a place where you know massive contamination, which will go on for thousands of years.、Mm. The Russians used it as a military site, so they were shelling outwards from there, knowing that the Ukrainians couldn't couldn't fire back in. And there's a whole series of things that have happened as a result of this war. And the point of the delegation, which produced a report, it was led by Margot Wallström, the former Swedish、uh, foreign minister. Was looking at how you prosecute environmental crimes, how you collect evidence, which is the basic, you know, starting block, the building block of of any kind of、uh, legal process. And it's a it's a movement that's gathering. It's really gathering some、um, strength.、Uh, you may know that there is a proposition that the crime of ecocide be added to、um, uh, to to the list of war crimes. So you know there is a. And a growing understanding that environmental crimes are crimes against humanity,、mm. and so this is part of, partly trying to build the processes、um, 
as well as collect the evidence and as well as offering support to Ukraine for what will be a very, very long aftermath of this war. Absolutely. Of course, that's not Russia's only crime and very much dominating the headlines is the death of Alexei Navalny, who was really the biggest threat to Vladimir Putin, although he'd been locked up for years and years and years. His death, not exactly a surprise. He kind of foretold it himself, but nonetheless extremely shocking. It it is profoundly shocking, and and it is just the most brutal reminder of of how squalid and brutal this regime is. I mean, it's it's obviously not the first person that that Putin has publicly murdered. I mean, I <clears throat> I knew um, Anna Politoskaya, who was an, an extraordinary brave journalist who covered the second war in Chechnya, which was essentially Putin's war in which he leveled Grozny, the capital of, of Chechnya, and, and, you know, with tens of thousands of deaths. And Politoskaya was murdered. She was shot in on her own doorstep on Putin's birthday. You know, it was it couldn't be more, you know, rubbing everybody's nose in this appalling thing. And although Navalny, you know, yes, I, I suppose one could have bet on him not surviving. Um, but still, it's the loss of someone who was everything that Putin wasn't. You know, he was handsome, charismatic, moral, uh, extremely popular. And he he represented, I suppose, the hope that one day there could be another Russia. It was a reminder that there is another Russia, that Putin's mixture of, of you know, brutality and lying and corruption isn't the only Russia. Mm. So imagine if, if the South African regime had, had uh, murdered Nelson Mandela and there never had been that moment, that long walk to freedom, when everything changed and, and hope was born and the hope of a transition out of this appalling dark period into, into a, you know, a better world. Um, you know, in Mandela's case, you know, he embodied that and he carried that and he made that possible. Navalny could have done that. And so the death of Navalny is in a sense the death of that hope. And the timing? Well, I I don't think Putin ever, you know, wastes a moment to uh uh to rub everyone's nose in it and the Munich Security Conference has just begun. So I think this is more than coincidence. I think he's saying, you know, at a moment when the Americans are still held hostage by their extreme right on the question of arms supplies to Ukraine, which are very desperately needed, when you have this very important gathering of everyone to do with security, when Trump has threatened to pull out of NATO, you know, this is this is Putin just rubbing everyone's nose in it yet again. And being very present, even though he's absent. Absolutely. Um, now, Navalny's wife was at Munich. It was the most astonishing piece of footage I've seen in a long time. She was introduced, she walked on everybody, I mean, including friends of Russia, stood and gave her a standing ovation. And she stood there, you could see she was on the brink of tears, as as was I watching it, as indeed we both are at the moment. And she just stood there and they applauded and applauded and applauded. And she said, I thought, should I be home with my children? And then she said, I thought, what would Alexei do? He would come here. You. Yeah, it was. I mean, that is the other thing about that about Navalny. I mean, as a as a couple, he and and Yulia were absolutely extraordinary. You know, they returned to Russia together after he, <laughs> he was poisoned with Novichok um, by the FSB. And in a coma, he was flown to Berlin to recover. Uh, that was a violation of his parole. 
uh, because he wasn't meant to, you know, <laughs> to travel. He was in a coma. So on his return to Russia, and, you know, everybody said, don't go back. But he, he needn't have again. gone back. He needn't have gone back. Yeah. But he and Yulia went back, and at the airport, he was he was detained. And again, you know, she showed an extraordinary dignity and an extraordinary presence and an absolute commitment to the ideals that, that he and, and that they together represented mm. and believed in. So the Munich Security Conference, uh, ongoing, and uh, as, as we were saying earlier, what a year to be there. I mean, so interesting. Our Andrew Muller is there reporting uh, from the conference. I'm very jealous. But one of the things that's come up there is they're talking about social media. Uh, tell us more about various discussions around that. Yeah, I I, I noticed um, that, that you you will be familiar with the uh, with the contention that when uh, after Elon Musk uh, took over Twitter, um, that Elon Musk's uh, signature <laughs> management of Twitter included pretty much sacking both you know many of the maintenance staff, but also the, the people who monitored posts and who you know who who as it were, regulated the conversation. Um, and uh, there had been reports that, you know, there were, of course, this is a massive election year all over the world. And one of the key questions is what are, you know, what is AI? Uh, what impact is AI going to have? What impact are these fake accounts, these bot, bot accounts, which have proliferated on Twitter since Elon Musk took over? What influence are they going to have on these very, very crucial elections? And we have the appalling possibility that Donald Trump might get back into the presidency. So a, a group of, of, of um, social, big social media companies had been exchanging information on fake accounts, for example, so that they could be taken down. And, and Musk had not, his or Twitter X, had not been turning up for several months. However, I noticed that uh, in the margins of the Munich Security Conference, um, again, uh, an, an agreement has been has been reached, um, which in which these companies are going to um, are going to try to ensure that AI content, so fake content um, of all kinds, is not distributed or does not stay on their platforms for long, and they again they're going to share best practices with their rivals and they're promising swift and proportionate responses when the content starts to spread. So, you know, it's it's not, it's quite vague, but it is a very kind of promising initiative in that, you know, we're all at the mercy of fake content and a great deal of effort goes into producing fake content and we can't rule out the kind of nasty surprise at the end of the US campaign which could you know, scupper Biden's chances or if Biden is still the candidate at that point. So, you know, all kinds of distortions can 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 and can be produced by bad actors. Mm. So if the companies really uh, really live up to this promise, then I think it's it's essential if democracy is going to survive this rather yeah. alarming year. I think whatever the prevalence of AI or fake information in the UK, there will be no surprises at the next election. <laughs> so it seems. So it seems. We've had two by-elections. Um, and we had two by-elections, it ought to be noted, in a, in a, sorry, in a week, uh, which hadn't gone terribly well for the Labour Party. They'd got in a frightful tangle about their own... Um, uh, several 
several of their candidates, two of their candidates who appear to have uh, made very disagreeable remarks and for which they were first not disciplined and then disciplined, so then defenestrated as Labour Party. I mean, it was a mess. I mean, it was everything that you could criticise the Labour Party for, not acting decisively, uh, not having dealt with uh, uh, with anti-Semitism properly and being riddled with factions. So we go into the by-elections thinking, gosh, well, that's not good. And they had big majorities to overturn and they won both of them. <laughs> and they said, OK. <laughs> so the next morning, there were a lot of Tory, hapless Tory spokesmen trying to turn this somehow into a victory by pointing out that the turnout was low. Well, actually, it wasn't. It wasn't any lower than it normally is in a by-election. So the prognosis for the next election is is grim. But what we've got at the moment is in, in the Tory party's fragmenting into armed camps which mainly are fighting each other so we've got reform which isn't part of the Tory party but represents that very right wing element that essentially infiltrated the Tory party around Brexit and is now you know campaigning away and it did quite well in the by-elections and that's very bad news for the Tories because it will shave off the you know disaffected right wing in a general election and they're hoping uh, reform are actually hoping to get into parliament remember Nigel Farage who the leader of Brexit <laughs> in many guises uh, has been a major figure in in British politics he's never ever been elected to parliament mm. um, so you know this could be their this could be their moment he's also flirting with the idea that he might be the better person to lead the Tory party, but that's yeah. that's just mischief making, I think. <laughs> Meanwhile, another another startling figure, one George Galloway, former MP, um, who went off in all sorts of directions after losing his seat, um, is campaigning in uh, in Rochdale, which is one of the constituencies where Labour no longer has a candidate because because they had to sack them so who knows we've got we have a landscape peopled with you know rogues and monsters and dragons at the it's moment quite extraordinary isn't it and you know the one thing I, I remember about George Galloway of course was his appearance on Big Brother where he li- had to pretend to be a cat and licked pretend milk out of Rula Lenska's cupped hands I think it was I, did you have to remind me <laughs> that really you know, yes but, but the thing about that is that it was terribly shocking at the time we're not mocking no. Nigel Farage for going on I'm a Celebrity and eating, you know, yes, camel yes, gonads. Yes, I, know, I know, I know. I mean, it is it is a sign of how much more brutalised we've become by, by in, in the last few years. And I remember George Galloway, he used to present a programme on, um, there's an Iranian, you know, um, government television channel, uh, which had a big, big building out on the North Circular. And I, I went on his show once and it was kind of normal. It was a book programme until the last five minutes when some Suddenly, George does a piece to camera, which is denouncing America, denouncing the evils of the Western world. And he suddenly became this kind of roaring monster into camera. And, you know, that's kind of what he does. Very effectively, he once absolutely destroyed a bunch of US senators who'd never quite encountered anything like him. Um, So he's effective, but he he is uh, very far out there. Yes, absolutely. Um, Isabel, just looking back at your impressive list of of books, oh <laughs> um, uh, I'm particularly struck by Barbie, but I should point out it's Klaus Barbie. <laughs> yes, it is. yes, no high heels here. <laughs> 
which I think is fantastic. But it is all non-fiction, of course. Yes, it is non-fiction. I mean, every every journalist dreams of writing a novel, but um, I'm one of the ones who hasn't got around to it yet. <laughs> well, there is a new literary prize, and that hopes to address the, the gender gap in non-fiction. Of course, something that has not affected you, you as a f- fabulous woman, have gone on and, and done all these books. Um, but so the long list uh, was announced on Thursday um, of the uh, the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. So publishers submitted 120 books. Uh, it's a very global list. It comes it includes authors from Australia, Canada, India, Jamaica, the Philippines, and here in the UK. And the chair of the judges is the award-winning historian, author, and broadcaster. I'm sure you know her. It's Professor Susanna Liskin. Uh, Susanna. Very many thanks for, for joining us on the line. Tell us why there is a need for a gender-specific non-fiction prize. Morning. Well, the reason it was needed was because it seems that non-fiction is still perceived by some people to be a kind of man's game and that fewer women have been recognised for their contributions to non-fiction in all the ways that matter, like sales and advances and exposure and so when the Women's Prize were, for Nonfiction was announced a year ago, the, the prize published some research that they had found that over the previous year, women writing nonfiction were less likely to be reviewed in the UK national media. So across national newspapers, only 26% of the coverage was of books by female writers. They were less likely to appear in the best books of the year. Only a third of those were by female writers. They were less likely to be shortlisted or win book prizes. Over the previous 10 years, across seven prizes, 35% of those winners had been female and they were more likely to receive a low advance. So the gender payback gap had been growing. So clearly there was a need to do something to to, to shift the dial, really. Absolutely. So apart from the fact that obviously they are non-fiction books, what is the criteria for, for entry to this? So they need to be written by a single author. Uh, they need to have been submitted within a certain period, the 1st of April 2023 to the 31st of March 2024. That's their publishing and published in the UK in that time in English. And then in terms of getting to the long list, they need to ha- be excellent in research and writing. They need to be original and accessible. And uh, you've got a stunning panel of judges, one of whom was too busy to come out the other week. She told me that she was reading for it. <laughs> um, and um, but, but very glad that you have Carmela Shamsi and various others on the, on the list. Tell us about your judges. Yes, an amazing panel of judges. I've been very privileged to work with them. As you say, Kamala Shamsi, an award-winning novelist herself, had won the 2018 Women's Prize for Fiction, the Sister Prize. We've also got Professor Nicola Rollock, who has written a wonderful book about racial policy. We've got Anne Seber, the biography, and Venetia Lamana, who is a fair fashion, or a slow fashion, I suppose one should say, um, campaigner and activist. And in terms of the books that you're, you're, you're getting in and that are on the long list, are you finding the subject matter is gender-specific, or is 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 that not at all reflected? In some cases it is. So there are some books, there's a book about the transition to motherhood called Matrescence, which is about neuroscience as much as anything else, but it's about thinking about the impact of motherhood on a woman. There's a book called Eve, which is a sort of 200 million year history of evolution, but thinking about 
the role of the females of the species in oh, that, that's which often Kat, overlooked. Kat yeah. Buchanan, uh, Buchanan, whatever her name that's is. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yes. I've interviewed her. She's fabulous. She turned up in pink latex. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and yeah. her book is absolutely fabulous and, yeah. and fits with that. So, so in some cases, that's. but there's also things that, are, you know, are the sort of magisterial authoritative studies that you might otherwise expect to be written by a man. So, you know, whether it's uh, the 20th century uh, history of and politics and and much more than that of, 20, of South Asia or thinking about um, I suppose things like um, young queens which is looking at Renaissance queens in 16th century Europe so the thing I would say that uh, it perhaps binds I mean they're really it's a really diverse list we've got you know memoir and investigative journalism what you know for example thinking about uh, topical things like AI and um, capitalism and social media and extrajudicial murders in the Philippines, but we, but we've also, I think the thing that can unite them is that there's a sense of trying to tell hidden stories, trying to reveal uh, things that have been otherwise untold to redress wrongs, mm. and and I think whilst I I shy away from thinking that it's something specifically female, because I think the thing is that these books are all unique to the authors who've written them. I think that there is a sense that when women come to work or they're asking different questions, the men are asking, and therefore they're getting different answers. Mm, mm, that's so true. And I think I just want to bring uh, Isabel Hilton into this conversation, because I think all three of us have judged non-fiction prizes. Last year I did the Bailey Gifford. You've done many, many, uh, Isabel, mm. haven't you? Um, and so what is it, do you think, that... that the judges themselves are looking for in 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 this prize, uh, Susanna. Is there sort of one thing that you're looking for? No, and it's not one thing. I think it's a combination of things. It's you. We want a book that is um, very well written. It's a literary prize. We want something that demonstrates rigorous research. Although research varies a lot for nonfiction, it can be interviews around the globe, and it can be going into the archives. And we want a book that made us want to keep reading. So mm. it's sort of got to have those three things, really. And and as well, what would you say it is for you when when you're judging? Um, well, first of all, you know, a big salute to Suzanne and her her, her team of judges because this is a, such a diverse field and very very difficult, I think, to come to a, a consensus. Um, I I would look for I do look for um, first of all you want to go on reading it I mean you, <laughs> the daunting pile of books that comes in <clears throat> when you are um, uh, faced with this you you feel a great sense of responsibility because writing a book is a, you know it's a tough slog and you don't want to dismiss anyone's work on the other hand there is a daunting pile of books and if it's not compelling in the first couple of chapters it tends to kind of go into the secondary pile um, I think the 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 one of the you know the triage at the beginning getting getting from the you know the pile to the long list and then to the short list you know that does demand a broad agreement uh, in the group because otherwise you're going to get holdouts at the end and that's you know that's very difficult you need to try to keep people together moving mm. forward and i have had um, uh, I have to say, with um, not with women on juries, but with men on juries, I have had some problems with um, men who 
tactically voted in, you know, they voted down good books because they were championing something that, you know, they really wanted to win. And so they started playing, you know, tactical games with the voting system, which I think is pretty, pretty poor behavior. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, this isn't, you know, we're not, we're not, this isn't about you or what you like. This is about, you know, reaching a, a, a proper judgment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I guess I look for, I look for what anyone looks for. I look for things I didn't know. I look to be surprised. I look to be um, persuaded and compelled. I look to be enlightened. I look to, to you know, finishing the book and think, I'm really glad I read that. Mm, mm. It, it, it is. It's a, it's a wonderful experience. I remember first reading uh, Catherine Rundell's book mm. uh, that ended up yes. winning the Bailey Gifford Prize and just being astounded at, at, at it on sentence level at every yes. single sort of yes. bit of it. Um, Susanna, uh, tell us the, 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 about the timing now for this award. So you've just announced the long list. Shortlist is coming up uh, 27th of March. Yes, so the shortlist comes quite quickly upon us. Um, <laughs> we have to take 16 down to 6. So that's announced on the 27th of March. And then in June, on the same day as the Women's Prize for Fiction winner is announced, we announce the non-fiction winner. That's fantastic. And I mean, the Women's Prize for Fiction has made such a difference uh, to, to the literary landscape. I can only imagine that, that this will do exactly the same. Well, I hope so. I hope so indeed. And that um, you know, what I really hope, I suppose, is that we see booksellers and publishers thinking about the balance of their lists, and we see publishers thinking about investing in writers who are writing nonfiction. You know, there were some areas where we would have liked to have seen more submissions in certain sort of topics and or subjects, and we didn't see them. I mean, we we've got the best of of a whole range of things with technology and economic science, all sorts of things, but. I hope that in future we see a change in that literary landscape where women are also being rewarded and encouraged in these fields. Absolutely. Uh, Susanna, many thanks for, to, for speaking to us. That is uh, Professor Susanna Liscombe, and she is chair of the judges of the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. So look out for that. The winner is announced on the 13th of June. Uh, and Isabel, what's next for you? Are you writing another book? <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a famous cartoon in which... Um, one character says to another, um, I'm writing a book, and the other says, yes, neither am I. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, in theory, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> but there's a lot, there's a lot, of, there, there's an awful lot else going on, and that's that's my temporary excuse. Absolutely. Uh, Isabel, thank you so much for, for coming on to speak to us. That's uh, Isabel Hilton. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to our producer and studio engineer, Mariella Bevan. And Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend without me uh, I'll be uh, in Australia uh, at uh, the Adelaide Writers Week but I will be filing some content from there I'm Georgina Godwin thanks for listening